2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS Podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. The rain is back, if ever it went away. Um, so should we skip the weather chat and go straight to the books? What have you been reading this week? Let's go back inside.
3: <laughs> I'm not outside. I don't know outside. what you're doing outside. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Mentally, let's go back inside. Well, actually, while I think it must, I must have done this maybe while you were away, but I read the final Casale. Oh, did you? Book Elizabeth Jane Howard. Yeah, casting off. That's yes. the final one. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. And I loved it. Again, I was worried. We were we talked about this various times as well. I was a bit worried. You know, when you come to the end of something really good, you're worried that it won't end well, yeah. or um, you know, that it won't live up to it. And actually, I was worried that it was going to be incredibly grim because the one before that was was tough going. There was a lot of pain. Mm. in it and nobody seemed to be mm. on a very happy path but I loved it and and actually I could see I could you could, you can see maybe three quarters of the way through I thought oh I wonder if this is a bit of tying up here of loose ends and I didn't mind that I could see it as it were and then I felt oh good okay let's 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 see what the shakedown is and they weren't they weren't all wonderful happy endings they were there was they were sort of people coming to terms with things yeah, I, I, yeah. I just, I just thought it was brilliant.
2: I think when you've been following characters for 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 so long, there's almost a sense of a relief. You don't mind that tying up of ends sometimes, or that sense of an ending building, because you you want to have seen it through from beginning to end. Because obviously you can't do that in real life, but um, you know, which isn't to say that there isn't a sadness then when you when you close the covers for for the last time. I, I always, you know, there's always a sense of ritual about that, isn't it? You have it, you sort of close the book and then you just want to make sure that you take a few moments to just, uh, I don't know, luxuriate's not the right word, although sometimes there is that kind of luxuriate in the pause after the reading, the end of the story. Yeah,
3: you hold them in your mind and and kind of, do you think, well, you've, I've got them there now. but And actually what she was very good at, Elizabeth Jane Howard, was they weren't, I've probably phrased it wrong, they, they weren't endings. They were all potential re-beginnings in a way. So things weren't really closed off.
2: Yeah, like with Rupert and and, and Zoe in particular. I won't want to with say more than that. With lots of them actually. And what you thought was, yeah. oh gosh, you
3: know, I wonder how that will work out, which is exactly what you want to be thinking. You don't want to be thinking, mm. okay, that's it. I've had a long, full and happy life, and bomb, the end. Yeah. It's not not like that at all. So then they do stay alive, I think, in your mind, because you because you think about the you know the, the potential of them. So I don't no idea what I'm going to read now. I'm bereft. <laughs> how about you?
2: Well, I've been rereading um, for maybe the umpteenth time uh, Claire Wills' book from a few years back. I think it was 2017 or 2018. Um, Lovers and Strangers, an Immigrant History of Post-War Britain, which looks at how migrants changed the face of, of the UK. And so I'm particularly interested in the Italians at the moment and how they were deemed socially suspect so there's this this, there's this bit where wills quotes a home office official i think it's in 1948 uh, who says i've been given to understand that the order of intake of foreign labor is approximately poles bolts ukrainians italians and finally germans i've never been at all happy about the proposal to take in male italians in preference to germans bearing in mind that this is immediately after the second world war Um, the home office experience suggests that italian immigrants do not Generally speaking, make any valuable contribution to the economy of the country, which, which is nice and stark. Wow,
3: <laughs> I have to say, yeah, as somebody who, uh, if you spent any time in Edinburgh or Glasgow and ever eaten anything there, <laughs> <laughs> that's—I that, mean—that's a tiny amount of what they've what they've contributed, but it, it was always very gratefully received.
2: I know, and there was also some concern at the time over their Latin ways, their sex appeal, which you know would obviously. Corrupt British women and girls.
3: (laughs) That's so brilliant to be frightened of their sex appeal.
2: I know. Anyway, um, <laughs> coming up on this week's show, uh, twin exhibitions, one in Saffron Walden and the other in Woking, mark the centenary of the birth of the English sculptor, painter, writer, designer and illustrator, Michael Ayrton. Boyd Tonkin welcomes a chance to follow this cunning artificer into the centre of his personal maze, populated by the mythical hybrid figures that so obsessed him. But first, 10 years after the death of Russell Hoban, his adult novels have achieved penguin modern classic status. And as our writer Margaret Drabble puts it in an essay this week, he would have been extremely pleased because he seems to have suffered fairly acutely from status anxiety, a fear that he and his work were not taken seriously. He was though, Margaret says, touchy and might have been less pleased to see that none of the reissues appears with a foreword or more than the barest biographical sketch we will now attempt to make up for this absence of critical material. And for that, we must be joined by Margaret Drabble herself. Margaret, it's good to have you with us again.
0: Hello. Um,
2: you describe Hoban's reputation as curiously free floating. Can you tell us what you mean by that and, and why you think it's so? I think it's because he wrote in so many
0: different genres and none of them really very continuously the same. I mean, he, he started Dive as a children's writer and as a copy editor. And then his adult novels, of which he wrote a lot, were sort of science fiction or futuristic or satirical about the times he was living in. But they were all at a very odd angle to reality. And he rather like Anthony Burgess. People never knew what he
2: was going to do next. And I mean, they're all very full, full of references, full of kind of literary cameos and literary references and references to, to artists. So I think maybe, you know, for that reason, you'd think he'd at least be worthy of the the backhanded compliment that he's a novelist's novelist, but he's not even that really either. He
0: isn't. I was very surprised when I was reading these novels. I asked around amongst my acquaintance, most of whom are really quite well read in a broad way, and very few of them had read him, and one or two didn't even know who he was. (laughs) And, And he would have been so annoyed by that. Uh, Are there other kind of people who would have read him, you would have thought?
3: Perhaps um, it's because because, first of all, it's only pretty recently that children's writing has been really taken in any way seriously, isn't it? And also science fiction, people have historically been very sniffy about speculative or science fiction. Perhaps it's it was not only that he was difficult to pin down, but he was writing in rather, un, you know, unfashionable genres as well, do you think?
0: It could be, it could be that, that he kind of fell between two stools. But I was very interested. I, I did ask my friend Nicholas Tucker, who is a professor of children's literature in his time, um, what he thought about it. And he said that he met Russell Hoban in the 1980s, I think he said, when children's writing was really on a high. And Hoban appeared at lots of conferences and was much a Admired for his children's writing and so he did have a kind of a niche as a children's writer but it didn't seem to spread or continue with his adult novels.
2: Um, Well I mean I I have to confess that I fall into the the category of person that would probably have it would probably anger him most uh, in that I've only read Ridley Walker which we'll we'll tackle in, in a moment and I'd never heard of of, of his children's work really i mean I, partly maybe because i didn't grow up in in this country but i'd never heard of the mouse and his child from 1967 for example so perhaps maybe before we turn to the adult novels um perhaps you could briefly just tell us what that one's about given that it is his most famous well the, the mouse and his child is
0: um, a very grim little story about two clockwork toys um that go on a ghastly pilgrimage um pursued by rats and crows and generally having a great suffering time. To tell you the truth, I haven't quite finished it because I found it so depressing. <laughs> and I didn't read it when my children were small. And I, I kind of got to the end of the novels I was reading. And then I put this
2: to one side because there's something so um, so gloomy about it. Which is, I suppose, hardly surprising given that it is identified as, as a Holocaust novel it prefigured, you say, it prefigured Art Spiegelman's mouse.
0: Yes, it certainly did. And I wonder whether Art Spiegelman knew it. Um, But I'm not sure he intended it as a Holocaust novel. It's only after reading his adult Holocaust novels that it becomes kind of obvious that that's exactly what it is. I think if I'd read it to my children, and we did read the Francis Badger books when my children were small, I think I would have perhaps thought of it as a Holocaust novel, but maybe I wouldn't even have recognized it as such. It's only because I came across it in the context of so much that was about the
2: Holocaust that the story became so obvious. With that in mind, let's turn to the adult novels, which, as you say, uh, have been overlooked until now. There are eight printed between 1973 and 1998. You describe reading them in sequence, which you did for this article, as exhausting but exhilarating. Can you tell us about that? And where did you start? Did you do them chronologically?
0: I did do them chronologically. The only one I'd read was Ridley Walker. And I started at the beginning and I read them through. And I had moments of, of, of... resistance when I didn't think I was enjoying them at all but then I realized I was actually always looking forward to picking them up again and seeing what on earth he was going to do next and they're exhausting because it's like a sort of roller coaster ride um, in time and space Um, they're not relaxing novels at all you're always kept on your toes about what period you're in, what the characters are called, and in the first novel, he has two characters that have the same name but inverted, which is really very difficult to read, and I kept having to work out, and also unpronounceable to boot, so I had to keep out working who, out which was the father and which was the son. So he doesn't make life easy for the reader, and as you mentioned earlier, um, they're very, very heavily loaded all of them with literary and art, and art
3: and music references. I mean, it sounds almost perverse having such d- difficult names and putting in all of these allusions. He doesn't want to give any help, does he? You, you do say at one point that he's, and there's so much wordplay and it's so dense. He just, it's like he can't, he can't stop himself. Yes, and he didn't censor himself, and I wonder if he
0: struggled with an editor who told him to take some of it out because the, the verbal structure is very, very rich and and self-reflective. And it can be very annoying, but then, as I hope I make clear in my article, it can also be extremely funny and and clever and perceptive. But but it's relentless.
3: There's never a passage of calm prose. It does sound exhausting, and it's an interesting thought, do you think if he'd had a really tough editor that, or or one that he had listened to more, perhaps, do you think that the books would have been better, uh, a better read or better known? I don't know. I mean, uh, he must
0: certainly have been terrifying to copy edit because the, um, the wordplay is so dense that it's amazing that he got such good texts. Penguin has printed them very well. And as far as I can see, there aren't any typos, but it must have been so difficult going through them, making sure that everything was spelt precisely as he meant it to be spelt. So I, I don't know if, if a, in a way, I'm glad he didn't have an editor who told him not to do it. Um, it might have been to his long-term advantage as, as a classic, but it would
2: have been a pity to, to stop him rampaging, which he did. And presumably because of the, of that rampaging and that layering and layering and layering, and layering of detail, one of the strands in the work seems to be one of almost social history. You know, we see the emergence of the NHS, certain household products, brands, underground stations, very specific locations and details.
0: I loved all that. I mean, that was like, in a way, those parts were quite like a, a conventional novel. But th- but there's always this um, other perspective on them. So it's a sort of mixture of a very acute observation. He can spend pages describing standing on the platform at Earl's Court or looking for the Wimbledon train and you think yeah, yes I know that platform and then suddenly it will go into another mode altogether and um, and you're in another world.
2: And well could you fill us in a little then on his um, biography I think because of those descriptions of you know Earl's Court and very specific locations Cornwall is another I was surprised to learn that he wasn't British. I'd always, I'd always assumed that
0: he was. He, he was American born. He was from a very Jewish family in that his father worked for um, a Jewish periodical and the son took over those interests. He worked in the States for a while and then he came over with his family to London and was here for a year or two. But then his family, his wife and three children, went back to the States and he refused to go with them. He'd fallen in love with London and um, they didn't want to stay here and he didn't want to go back. And that's when he began to lead a kind of lonely London bachelor life, which comes up again and again in the novels of him haunting the British Museum or haunting antiquarian bookshops and or the London Zoo or, or the parks. And you get this, far from being a family man, he's become a very lonely Figure haunting London, which he got to know very well, but not as his own city it's the
2: kind of love of a stranger planted in it and presumably that background um you mentioned his his father, as you suggested earlier, the Holocaust casts its shadow across much of the work, doesn't it
0: it certainly does yes there's a very um a very keen awareness of, of Jewish heritage. there are a lot of jokes not a, some of which are slightly off-color and some of which are absolutely fine, but in the middle of his novel about the Crusades, which is really set in in the First Crusade in the 11th century, um, he suddenly says, um, it was like that moment when somebody who isn't Jewish asks you whether you are Jewish. I thought, well, that's a really interesting observation. To be having in the 11th century, and in a contemporary kind of London party scene as well. So obviously, he was very self-conscious about his um, his allegiance to being Jewish, and the Holocaust was part of that.
2: Um, insofar as we can talk about Constance um, in, in his novels, uh, language, um, as you said before, language is is one of them. Uh, Wordplay, and it's pretty much the first thing that you think of when you think of Ridley Walker. I think. So let's turn, um, Paul Hoban. Let's turn to that novel. Um, how would you describe it to anyone unfamiliar with it? And and also, I suppose you you think it is better than the others, don't you? There's no getting around that.
0: I really do think it's better than the others. I don't know whether that's because I read it first and I was completely um, bowled over by it, as many people are. I thought it was an amazing novel. But it it's set in the it's set in the future, but it's the future after a nuclear Um, explosion and you're in a world where language has has reverted. We've gone back to the Stone Age and we're just about to become uh, from hunter gatherers, we're becoming farmers, but wild dogs are are ruling the land. And it's all set in Kent with wonderful transpositions of names, which are very funny. Um, And so you can spend a lot of time in this strange language that the narrator Ridley Walker who's a 12 year old boy he uses this very strange language and you can have a lot of fun just trying to work out what the actual place name was that um, Hoban has transposed into his own spelling and there are lots of concepts too like um, yellow boy which is sulfur and, the, and, and bust in fire which is um, explosions and then he talks about the airships which no longer exist but there's a kind of folk Memory uh, amongst these hunting-gathering poor people um, who've endured terrible poverty and violence, there's a memory of when men were clever. And he does that so brilliantly, the kind of way they're looking back to the past and um, knowing that the human race had been capable of extraordinary achievements, which then destroyed them, as we know, and will they begin again to create and is the kind of lure of explosive matter so strong that they will just, as soon as they learn how to do it, they'll destroy themselves again. And that's the kind of theme of the whole thing, is is man doomed to be his own destruction. It has an extraordinary tone, which is comic in a horrifying way, um, but it's never... Unlike some of his novels, it's never offensive. It's not kind of pornographic, or, and there's plenty of scope for pornography, but it isn't pornographic. It's much more serious than that somehow. It, 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 it works all the way through, which is um, not true of most of his work.
2: And when you had read it, you wrote to him to tell him how wonderful you thought it was, how brilliant, and that didn't really go very well, did it?
0: No, absolutely not. He wrote me a horrible letter um, in reply um, telling me that I I was ought to be ashamed of myself for not putting him as an entry into the Oxford <laughs> Companion to English <laughs> Literature, which I'd edited. I've only had one other letter um, about uh, from, from an author complaining who complained in exactly the same tone. And both of them I didn't even think of because nobody suggested them. And I think I, I should have thought of this, but it only occurred to me now that the reason why I didn't put Russell Hoban in was, A, that I'd only read... I hadn't even read Ridley Walker at that stage. But nobody ever suggested
2: him because he wasn't on anyone's list. Mm, well, there you go. There's that status anxiety and, and, and justified, really. And uh, what is, I mean, Anthony Burgess, who has
0: some parallels, I mean, the Clockwork Orange has some parallels, that Anthony Burgess, because he was English, and not only English, but man, defiantly Mancunian, he belonged to us, whereas Russell Hoban somehow didn't belong to us. He was American, but not quite American either. And I, I think that that, um, it's certainly one of the reasons why I didn't even think of putting him in the Oxford Companion. But his rage was it was quite comic, really. I must have got his address from my friend Andrea Newman, who knew him. And she, and she said she begged him not to send me this horrible letter, but he insisted on sending it. And then I felt upset because the thought of Andrea and Russell Hoban discussing me and my... Uh, Attitudes was it was uncomfortable to me, but then I decided it was ridiculous and threw the correspondence away, which I regret now.
2: Well, uh, to come back to Ridley Walker, uh, crucially, I suppose, in, in, in the context of the others, one of the reasons why it's so important is that it represents a, a change in style, doesn't it? Because the other novel that you referred to earlier, um, set during the Crusades, that was Pilgrim. That follows in a similar vein. It, almost couldn't, it seems almost like it couldn't have existed without Ridley Walker coming first. Yes, it's as though, I mean, I do have this fanciful theory that he
0: genuinely was given a revelation when he went into Canterbury Cathedral, because Canterbury Cathedral, or Cambry, which, which it's called in the novel Cambry, plays a crucial part, and the legend of St Eustace has been handed down to um, humanity in a very, very garbled and ridiculous version, but it's, which is also quite funny at times. But um, it's, it's as though he did have some spiritual revelation in the crypt at Canterbury. And that in accounts for his having gone on to, into a whole new step change of, of, of style and aspiration. I mean, he had before then been more a sort of satiric novelist, but then he becomes a, the big questioner about human destiny and human and evil and genocide. And I I like to think that he had a kind of moment of epiphany as he was standing in the cathedral
2: and I wonder I mean the the adult novels uh, you we've 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 mentioned um and I wonder if this isn't if this isn't partly a reaction to his having been so strongly associated with children's literature but they're often extremely adult um you know in the sense of, of maybe too harsh too graphic uh too ugly it's almost like he's protesting too much maybe. Yes I think maybe he is. He's trying to
0: push away the little nice little badges and um, tucking people up in, in cops for the night and he, he's going into a much more violent world. The, I think the last in, in the sequence I read was about a kind of Mephistelian pact whereby somebody offers somebody a million pounds for their death but then it turns into a a rather hideous parody of, of AIDS, HIV, um, paranoia.
2: And it's it's very unpleasant indeed. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to uh, leave listeners with, with a, a message that would, would pain Russell Hoban severely, but maybe uh, start with Ridley Walker and then take it cautiously from there. Margaret Drabble, we tried to get through all eight of the novels, but we couldn't. We could never have done that i don't think we did a pretty good job so thanks thanks as ever for joining us
0: no thank you
2: still to come on the show a life in labyrinths the critic boyd tonkin looks back at michael Ayrton's multifaceted career And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you will never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is to our podcast listeners for just five pounds or five dollars or the equivalent in whatever currency you use you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital so you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mer and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden, Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer.
3: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. This summer, now that galleries have opened again, if you can get to the south of England, you can see not one but two exhibitions celebrating the centenary of a multifaceted British artist. But surprisingly, it's an artist that perhaps not many of us are familiar with. We're talking about Michael Ayrton, a sculptor, painter, writer, designer and illustrator who worked in the mid to late 20th century, Boyd Tonkin has illuminated Ayrton's career for us, and we're delighted that he joins us now to talk it through. Boyd, many thanks for joining us. Hello. As you say in your piece, Michael Ayrton is a a relatively unknown figure, so um, we'll probably need to start from the beginning. Can you give us the essentials of his life, when he was around and where, and what what were the major artworks he produced?
1: Well, he did a lot within a relatively short um, lifetime. He died in his mid-50s in 1975. And he covered an awful lot of ground. He was a painter, an illustrator, but perhaps above all, a sculptor in bronze. He was also a writer, and he really traversed various genres. He was a novelist, he was an essayist, an art critic, even a poet sometimes. So this is someone who had terrific Versatility, but whose work ended up by centering on a very, very tight core of stories. And those are the stories of the Minotaur, of the labyrinth in Crete, of uh, the labyrinth's maker, Daedalus, and the uh, Daedalus' son, Icarus. And out of this nexus of myth, he produced something like, I think, 800 different works over a wide variety of media. So he was someone who ranged widely, but who ended up coming to rest in the same stories time and time again. It's
3: very unusual, isn't it? I was going to talk about the, I mean, it's impossible not to talk about the Daedalus and Icarus and the Minotaur. It's one of the the great myths, and it's inspired countless works of art, I mean throughout every medium, but but his take on it was a bit unusual, wasn't it? His view of Daedalus that you talk about in the piece.
1: Well, I, I think he's unusual in many respects. And as you say, his interpretation of the myths are not orthodox. For a start, his notion of Daedalus is not really that of the heroic artist. His Daedalus is a bubble an artisan. He's a meeker. He's someone who gets his hands dirty, someone who works with difficult materials. And clearly for Michael Ayrton, this was a self-portrait. This is the artist as a fixer, the artist as a technician. And it's a bit different from the um, slightly more elevated and, uh, if you like, pretentious view. Of, of the artist, which was uh, perhaps current in that period in the mid twentieth century
2: it 's interesting that you mention that you mentioned that he was he had a sort of predecessor in 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 that sense in his maternal grandmother
1: well she was a, a really really fascinating character. she was called Her- herta Ayrton and it 's interesting to begin with that Michael chose his maternal grandmother 's surname. Herta w- was a, a, a great innovator. She was an electrical engineer. At, I mean, how rare was it to have a, a woman electrical engineer in the 1890s, 1900s? Not only that, she won uh, the Royal Society's Medal for Research in Electrical Engineering. She won that in 1906, and... Guess what? And it took until 2008 for another woman to get the same honour. So he had this very distinguished, very unusual forebear and was always, I think, aware of um, the kind of um, problem-solving ingenuity that she applied to her areas of research. And this was his model of what the artist should do rather than sitting in the clouds and pontificating grandly
3: Yeah, so it's a much more because they often the idea of 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 uh, Daedalus was was as the emphasis was on the invention and the kind of flights of fancy but his is much more on the the practical side and you say that within the works there's evidence of sort of struggle and tension and the difficulty almost of making them isn't there
1: Yes, if you look at, uh, especially at his bronze sculptures, which I think are probably his strongest works, and have they have this incredibly impacted sense of um, struggle, of difficulty, of form, really fighting to escape from the material, uh, and so to some extent that, of course, is, is a process you find in a lot of modern sculpture from Rodin. Onwards, and um, Ayrton definitely lies uh, in that uh, lineage. Uh, but at the same time, there's something peculiarly individual about this uh, wrestling with material. And not only that, but the fact that the wrestling becomes a real source of pride, of distinction. Uh, that in the novel that he wrote about Daedalus, uh, The Maze Maker, he has Daedalus say that. Um, I'm a technician, not a hero, the two don't mix. And that really is a kind of um, personal motto for his career, I think.
3: Um, There's a particularly, um, a lot of his work is in private hands, isn't it? But there are some public works.
1: Yes, the, the, the fate of his large scale sculptures is a bit mixed, but you can see them. There's a big minotaur near the Barbican in London, Uh, There's a statue of um, Talos, who's a kind of um, robotic, automaton-like being, supposedly created by Daedalus, um, which is in Cambridge, in a fairly unpropitious site in a shopping centre. And I have to say, it's not the most um, popular public sculpture in the world. Uh, But uh, the greatest shame, perhaps, is that uh, his one really massive attempt to create a physical labyrinth, which he did uh, at the behest of um, a rather benignly eccentric uh, American millionaire. Uh, And that was actually built, it was built in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, but it really is a a fairly isolated place, so not many people tend to see it.
3: I was just going to follow up on that, the Minotaur that you mentioned in the Barbican. It struck me, it's a very... um... It seemed to be a very sad interpretation of the Minotaur. Of course, the Minotaur is not a happy story, but he looks completely burdened and uh, um, sort of, uh, what's the word, kind of bent down with kind of grief and difficulty, doesn't yeah. It?
1: Yeah, he? Yeah, He many of them... Uh, Ayrton's minotaurs, and this is true in the current exhibitions, even the very small ones, the kind of pocket-sized minotaurs, they are all they're carrying the world on their, their bull shoulders and they're clenched, they're taut, they're baffled, really. They don't know what it means to be half animal, half human. And to some extent, this is Ayrton's uh, notion of the double nature of humanity, uh, boast both beast and demigod, both um, intellect and flesh, and perpetually torn between this uh, double identity. So it's a very different Minotaur from the Minotaur you find, for instance, in Picasso and clearly Ayrton could not avoid Picasso, who himself had uh, used and reused the minotaur motif from the late 1920s onwards. Uh, But Picasso's minotaurs are a good deal more macho, more threatening, more predatory. Um, uh, They are in their own sort of dark way rather more heroic, dangerously heroic figures. Uh, But with Michael Ayrton, it's all to do with this irresolvable dilemma of being at once uh, a beast and a mind. And how do you live with that uh, dual aspect of your nature?
2: And in fact, just I mean, just on Picasso, um, Ayrton's very, very funny about Picasso, isn't he? In one of his novels, yeah, he calls him Capisco.
1: Yeah, yes, that's right. Th- this is a late novel, which I think really deserves to be reprinted. It's called The Midas Consequence, and it's about a, a sort of Picasso-like artistic giant. Um, and the other interesting thing about that novel, apart from the very, very ambivalent portrait of the P- Picasso figure, is that it's all about a film crew coming to to make a documentary. And there's this other aspect of Ayrton. He didn't live in a vacuum. He lived in an era when art was engaging with mass media, with mass education, with forms of publicity and and dissemination that were really quite new. Uh, So there's a lot of very, very shrewd reflection there and elsewhere in his work on the artist as celebrity. And again, he didn't want to be a celebrity. He wanted to be an artisan.
3: Speaking of Picasso and that, you know, his well, he's a movement unto himself, isn't he? Was Ayrton associated with, with any particular school or movement at any point?
1: Well, I don't think he wanted to be. I think he wanted to live in a kind of solitary splendor. He, he was um, slightly isolated in the Essex countryside. But however, he was very well connected. He had a lot of very eminent friends. Um, Wyndham Lewis, who was a kind of mentor. Henry Moore, Dylan Thomas, Constant Lambert. Uh, so he had a, a network of some extremely distinguished artistic and intellectual peers, but he never really wanted to be associated with a school. Uh, at the same time, in Essex, there was this group of artists um, uh, around the village of Great Bardfield who had really got going in the 1930s with people like uh, Eric Revilius, and by the 50s uh, there were figures such as Edward Borden, who were quite prominent in it, but the point about Ayrton is that he wasn't a joiner. He didn't want to be part of a group. He preferred to be um, uh, slightly on his own in splendid isolation and very much to do his own thing.
2: I mean, I suppose that 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 would have helped him then to um, mythologize himself, in a sense, to be able to do that. It's easier if, if you're in isolation, uh, because there's a line where after a visit to Greece, he says, I became identified with Greece. He became, in his words, the dedicated chronicler of a myth. And there's something about that you you need to put yourself apart and and lift yourself up to be able to to do that.
1: Yes, there there might be something slightly hubristic about that, although I think he really wanted to put himself in a lineage of craftspeople, of makers, uh, not of... of, um, Uh, proud, heroic um, visionaries, really. It was a a heritage of craft that meant most to him, Uh, allied, of course, to to the sense of the myths themselves as inexhaustible stores of meaning, as uh, a kind of matrix out of which you could derive new stories from the modern world. Uh, For instance, he associated... Icarus and the fall of Icarus with um, RAF pilots in the Second World War and later with the emergence of um, uh, spaceflight uh, and with the earliest uh, astronauts and cosmonauts.
3: So he was, yes, he was, he was drawing those parallels and, as you said, kind of widening it out um, the whole time. Um, in in the book you review along with the two exhibitions which are in saffron Walden and in Woking you mentioned that the editor who is in fact Ayrton's step-granddaughter she says i think it's her it says perhaps that he didn't fare so well in the public imagination perhaps he didn't uh, he wasn't very well known because the English are suspicious of of polymaths or, or multi-faceted practitioners do you think this is true
1: uh, I think um I think that's was Probably true at the time. And I think it's um, uh, to some extent still the case. He was this odd mixture. He, uh, as we were saying, he was quite sturdily alone. And yet he was also a very good communicator. Uh, he had a long relationship with the BBC. Uh, he was a sort of radio pundit. He did television programs. Um, David Attenborough commissioned him to do a big documentary on Berlioz. He was a composer he loved. Um, so he he got to practice a lot of these many arts quite successfully. But there was this sense that he thought he was being undervalued because he wasn't uh, a dedicated specialist. Um, I think it's interesting that one of his um, friends was uh, George Steiner Uh, In fact, he made a rather lovely chess set for George Steiner with um, Minotaur figures. Uh, And, uh, of course, George Steiner in his academic career equally felt rather slighted, marginalised, underpraised because he didn't stick in his lane because he ranged so widely over so many disciplines.
3: Mm, that That would be wonderful to see that chess set that would be quite a thing wouldn't it to play with that it reminds me when you when you mention about that it reminds me a bit about the way certainly people used to view Jonathan Miller a bit with suspicion because because he just was a bit too clever it was kind of like well you couldn't possibly do all those things.
1: Yeah I I think that that's a a really interesting and relevant comparison it was true of Jonathan Miller it was true for instance of uh, one another of um, Ayrton's friends Frederick Raphael, who actually writes about him in that book you mentioned. Uh, so there is still this sense that um, you can't qu- quite be allowed to transgress the, the borders of um, uh, the separate disciplines, that to do so is to risk being seen as too clever by half and to be seen as as a jack of all trades.
2: Coming off the back of what you, you've just said, you say... Um... That he 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 could popularize as well as as, as rhapsodize, and and that a lot of his work, you know, if the ancient mythology might make him sound somewhat uh, rarified, he was in fact much more democratic than 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 we might first expect. I, I'm particularly intrigued. You mentioned a few. Um, programmes that he wanted to make. I think this one might have been for radio, but you mentioned a 14-part series about mirrors, which sounds particularly yeah. intriguing.
1: Yeah, no, that that really does sound fascinating, and, and it, uh, a shame it never came to full fruition. Bear in mind that he was proposing that in the early 1970s, and this, of course, is the great age coming after Kenneth Clark's civilization, where people have very high ambitions for what... Um, television can do in the sense of the interpretation of the arts for uh, a broad audience. Specifically, it's also the time of John Berger's Ways of Seeing, and it's, I I, I have no evidence for this, but it's impossible that um, uh, Ayrton was not aware of what what Berger was doing and wanted to make his own, uh, what would have been very distinctive and different contribution. So you do have this rather creative tension uh, between what you might think of as traditional high culture on on the one hand and on the other, the search for the largest possible audience and for new ways of communicating with them.
3: Yes, I f- it's it's true, isn't it, that then it's true, true for science and philosophy, I think, as well, that at that point, TV wasn't afraid to be highbrow. They were happy to go, right, okay, sit down for 14 episodes and we're going to tell you about this. And, I mean, Bernstein did it for music. It was all over the place, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yes. Uh, And, of course, we should bear in mind that before he became uh, the saint of the the entire planet, uh, David Attenborough was really a very important uh, figure in this process uh, as the BBC's director of programmes and made some very, very ambitious Choices.
3: So, if, if if anyone was lucky enough to be able to get to these um, two exhibitions, Boyd in in Essex and in Woking, are there are there anything any works in particular there that you would we should look out for?
1: Well, there are two things I would say. First of all, don't uh, discount him as a painter and engraver. Uh, there are some fantastically dramatic um, uh, miniature drawings in uh, Saffron Walden. in Woking you have a really good selection of his paintings, which shows how he was a kind of stylistic magpie. He absorbed everything that was going on in British art from uh, sort of neo-Romanticism in the 1940s to sort of more semi-abstract landscapes in the um, uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, And that shows that he really did have talent, although it was a bit of a wandering talent. It didn't really come to rest uh, but you, I think most people will find that it is the, the bronze work that really continues to strike the hardest, and he does it on a variety of scales, and it's it, often the smallest works that are have the most compacted and coiled energy, and then late in his career, he he goes down this very interesting route of mixing bronze with perspex, which creates some really interesting and complex uh, um, play with reflections. Um, And uh, that takes us into the world of mirrors, which uh, clearly fascinated him towards the the end of his life and maybe hints at uh, the kind of changes he would have made to his work had he continued.
3: So um, we can look out for him in in, in Essex and in Woking uh, and the Barbican and in the Catskills, if you happen to be. um, And in a shopping centre in Cambridge. And in a shopping centre in Cambridge. So, yeah, we we all need to. Now we've had our eyes opened to Michaelette and we uh, we will look out for him. Thank you so much, Boyd, for talking to us today.
1: Thank you.
2: That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Margaret Drabble and Boyd Tonkin. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
3: And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Miss Marple has gone back there. In a spirit of a la recherche, she's she's gone back. She used to go there as a girl. They're all the same things that happened to Agatha herself. She used to go to the Army and Navy, and she'd go to a matinee in a four-wheeler with a pound of coffee cream. That's all what Agatha did. So she's putting her memories into Miss Marple, and she's gone back to this glorious hotel in a side street in Mayfair. It's kind of, people say, Fleming's, where the world has, has stopped. The clock has stopped. And, of course, the whole thing is virtual reality. Bertram's Hotel is a crime ring. It's a front for a crime... I'm sorry I'm giving away an ending here. I'm not giving away the whole thing. (laughs) Spoiler from 1965. Yeah, sorry. Sorry.
1: There was a first version of Macbeth created by Verdi when he was young in 1847 for Florence, where I am right now. It was then revised in 1865 when Verdi was, you know, fully mature, the Verdi of the 1860s. And what's extraordinary is that Verdi never heard the French. He did the revision using an Italian libretto and then turned it over to the French team to do a French translation. It's
3: interesting that you heard it in French. You heard something that Verdi never heard.
1: And that I think nobody else has ever heard since Paris in 1865. (laughs)
3: The one that immediately springs to mind for me is the pie that danny has in the champion of the world i'm sure i've said that before because that, that, that yeah that, that made a real impression on me um but somebody else wrote in with a slightly different one um lower to the ground shall we stay but not you know uh, none the worse for that because he's talking about tolkien's advocacy you could say via the excellent hobbits of second breakfast which as we all know is the best meal of the day And I had a little look into this, like a nerd, because I knew it came up, but I couldn't really remember where. In The Hobbit, the dwarves make a terrible mess and go off in the morning, and he thinks, oh, well, that's that done, and he washes up, and he sits down and has breakfast. And then the sun comes out, so he goes into his other room, and it says he's just sitting down to a nice second breakfast. And then Gandalf comes in and says, off you go, let's be having you. Uh, And the whole thing starts.